I'm sorry. Why are those words so hard to say? Because saying sorry is admitting that you are wrong. And by admitting you are wrong, it means you aren't perfect. You aren't the one who knows it all. You are no longer the one who is never wrong. You are no longer the one who is always right. And admitting that you are sorry for something in a given situation shows that you are no longer number one. Now, I know we all know we need to say sorry more often in humility. We know that without saying sorry, it damages relationships. But why don't we do it more often? I believe it boils down to pride. We simply don't want to admit we made a mistake. Many would sacrifice friendships. Many would sever family relationships, not simply wanting to admit that they have done something wrong. But what if you've wronged God? What if you've wronged a very close friend? What if you've wronged your spouse or a family member? I ask you, when was the last time you said to someone, anyone, I'm really sorry and really meant it? Now, before all of you throw up your hands and say, Pastor, I just said it last night. I said it this morning. And you're proud of it. How many of you, the second part of that question, in the admission of wrong in saying sorry, ask the Lord or ask the family member or ask your friend to forgive you if they are willing to forgive you and then continue by asking them how you can make it up to them for your mistakes? Now, that's much harder. Because you know, my friends, it's not just simply saying, I'm sorry, as a phrase, there's more. Every parent knows you can force a child to say sorry. You know the situation, two kids fighting. You tell them, tell your brother sorry. And with a tone that you know they don't really mean it, they say, okay, fine, sorry. And the other sibling shouts, he doesn't mean it. Look, he's smiling. He doesn't mean it. You see, with an admission of wrong, there is another element we forget. And that's the aspect of humbling ourselves down to see if the offended party is willing to forgive you. And the aspect of true sorrow indicated by a willingness to change your actions so that you won't do it again. Listen carefully. Sorry without change or life transformation is simply an empty word. And so this process of saying sorry with a view towards life change is what we call the spiritual discipline of confession. It's something the Bible teaches we are called to do in relation to the Lord, in relation to others, and it is the subject that we're going to talk about this morning. If you are new with us, we have been going through a sermon series entitled, Not First, Practicing Spiritual Disciplines Daily to Remind Myself of My Place in This World. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, we begin in verse 5, and we'll exposit all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. 
1 John, it's towards the end of your Bible, perhaps it's one or two pages in your Bible, very close to the book of the Revelation. Now, in this letter of 1 John, the Apostle John is writing to churches, and he, in, in this section, is going to write about the importance of confession. But before he talks about it and the practice of it, he will set the stage by first reminding the readers, us, about three important theological truths that require us to understand for us to fully accept this idea of confession. Look at me at verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. John, off the bat, with clarity, announces, declares that God is a holy God. His holiness is unmatched. It is pure. There is no sin found in Him. God is always right. He is never wrong. His motives are always pure. He makes no mistakes. You see, the first theological truth, if you're taking notes, number one, is that God is holy. He is never wrong in anything He does. Now, I know you've heard that concept taught before. It's nothing new. But it's a theological truth we must be reminded of, that God is holy. He is never wrong in anything He does. It means that in our relationship with the Lord, who's always right? He is. If He is holy, He never makes any mistakes. That's what the Bible says. He has no darkness at all. Never does He ever have to apologize to us for what He has willed and done in our lives. Why do I say that? You know, I know a lot of people who believe that God owes them an apology. They believe that God has given them the short end of the stick. They've drawn the worst in life. And so they believe that God owes them an apology for what they are going through. Or they believe that God owes them an apology that He hasn't answered their prayers in accordance with their desires. I want you to understand very clearly, my friends, God owes no one any apologies. He is never wrong. In fact, He's always right. He is light. It means He's correct. And what He has in store for us is always the best because it is foundationed on His unconditional love for us. That is the first truth. And then John continues in verse 6 with a second theological truth. Look with me. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, if as Christians we walk with the Lord, or we think we walk with the Lord, and we proclaim that we walk in His ways, but instead we sin in our life, then the Bible says we do things that are inconsistent with God's Word. And the Bible says we live a lie. In other words, we are hypocrites. Because just as light and darkness are on complete opposite sides of the spectrum, so also is holiness completely opposite from sin. Sin is inconsistent with the God who is holy. And that's the second theological truth I'd like you to understand. Number two, sin is inconsistent and contradictory with holiness, specifically God's holiness. Sin is inconsistent and contradictory with holiness. 
The Bible says we are only kidding ourselves if we are living in sin or uh, accepting of sin and somehow think that we can fellowship with God. You see, God wants no part of the sinful practices of men. doesn't matter what you color it, black, white, gray, big, small. Sin is sin in the eyes of God, and he wants no part of it because he's a holy God. Some of us think that because God is gracious and God is merciful, which he is, and he's patient and he's forgiving, it means that maybe he has relaxed his standards with regards to sin. And here John is very clear, no, he hasn't. How he has viewed sin since eternity past to eternity future will always be the same. At no time is God ever okay with sin. Now you think, well, pastor, the standards are too high. Perfect holiness. How can I even commune with God? How can I fellowship with Him? Because even as a Christian with my sin nature on this side of heaven, I still struggle with sin. I mess up. And that's a great question, and we'll tackle that in verse 9. But just for at this moment, I want you to understand and take away that sin is always contradictory and inconsistent with holiness. At, time is, at no time is God ever okay with sin. I remember a funny story of a hunter, and he came face to face with a very large bear. And so he raised his rifle and, and took careful aim at that large bear. When he was about to pull the trigger, uh, to his surprise, the, the bear spoke with a soft, soothing voice. Sir, isn't it better to talk than to shoot? What do you want? Let's negotiate this matter. The hunter was surprised. And so he lowered his rifle, and he said, wow, a talking bear. Maybe we can negotiate. And so the hunter said to the bear, you know, I really want a fur coat. Good, the bear said. That's a negotiable question. You know what I want? I want a full stomach, said the bear. So let's negotiate a compromise. How does a hunter compromise with a bear? Well, they sat down to negotiate. And after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach. And the hunter inside had his fur coat. Now you say, well, that's ridiculous. But that is the picture of what Satan does to us when he lies to us and he says to us as Christians, you can negotiate with holy God that a little bit of sin is okay. It's okay, God will understand. You live in a very difficult world to live in holiness. He will understand God can be compromised. No, my friends, there are some things that cannot be negotiated. And a holy God can have nothing to do with sin. He will never compromise with sin. There is no negotiations. God is never okay with sin. The third theological truth, verse 7. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love this verse. John continues by saying that there is an expectation that Christians live in holiness because God is a holy God. And when both are in the same state of holiness, then there is fellowship. But the last phrase in this verse is very important because it reveals how sinful people can fellowship with the holy God, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ when he volitionally died on the cross for our sins that we are cleansed from all of our sins. Would you circle a little but powerful word in verse 7? Would you circle the word all? Or if you're using your Bible electronically, highlight that word all. That word all means that there is no sin that the blood of Jesus does not forgive. That's why there is no such thing as an unpardonable or unforgivable sin. I know that our Catholic friends believe that there are six or seven venerable sins, sins which can never be forgiven. But the Bible is very clear in verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from, not some, not a few, all sin. Allowing for sinful man to have fellowship, to hang out in a local term with holy God. And it's only done through Jesus Christ. And this is our third theological truth, number three, if you're taking notes. Jesus cleanses us from all sins so we can fellowship with God. Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins so that we can fellowship with God. That's the purpose for why he died for us. To cleanse us from our sins because he wants a relationship with us. Do we go to him when we have a sin problem? Or are we trying to fix those problems ourselves? I remember a story of a sign that was put up at a garment factory, a, a, a textile mill, where they were making clothes. And here is what the sign read. When your thread becomes tangled, call the supervisor. When your thread becomes tangled, call the supervisor. Well, there was a young woman who was new to the job. And sure enough, in her inexperience, her thread became tangled. But she didn't call the supervisor lest the supervisor think that she was incompetent. And so she thought to herself, I'll, I'll just straighten this out by myself. And so she tried to untangle the thread. But sure enough, the situation got worse. The tangle got bigger. Finally, in an exasperation, she called the supervisor and simply cried out, Sir, I, I did the best I could. To which the supervisor replied to her, no, you didn't. And then pointed to that sign. To do the best, you should have called me first. You see, a lot of people in this world think that they can fix their sin problem. And so you have a lie. How do you fix a lie? You tell another lie. And you tell a bigger lie. You know how that process goes. We dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. That's why sin is a deadly cycle. We're just going to get ourselves into more problems and trouble. And yet Jesus says very clearly 
that we are to call on Him first, and He will deal with our sin problem as we confess, Lord, we can't fix my own problems. Now, with these theological truths clearly stated, what are we called to do? Two action points. First one, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There will still be those who say that, well, thank you for those truths, but I'm still a pretty good person. I don't sin that much. I don't have any vices. But look what John says. They are deceiving themselves because no one is perfect. You see, what's implied in action here is a call for self-examination. That's that first action point. A call for self-examination, which will reveal imperfections. If you honestly look at your life, it will easily reveal to you that you and I are not perfect. When was the last time you looked at your own life to see where areas in your life in relation to God and in relation to family and friends where you have not done right, where you have wronged them? We often don't do it because to do so requires that we quiet ourselves. But we don't like the quiet. It scares us. That's why we never allow when we're driving in Manila traffic to have quiet. Got to have the radio on. We have to be checking our social media pages on our phones. Perhaps a silver lining in such horrible traffic is that God is giving you hours every day for a time of quiet to reflect, to see areas in your life where you need to ask for forgiveness. But it's difficult because when we look at our lives, it reveals something we don't want to acknowledge. But boy, we are great at pointing out the faults of others, right? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you know this guy? And if you know them, oh, I know this. Let me tell you. And we begin to list out all of the things that they do, not right, but wrong. Oh, careful about this man. Careful about this woman. We are experts in looking and examining the lives of others and have not looked at our own lives. You know what the Bible says about that? Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to verse 5. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to verse 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Jesus' own words, verse 5. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Those are some pretty sharp words. Look at yourself first. Before you knock someone for having deficiencies in areas of character and in areas where they should be performing, look at yourself to see if you are guilty of the same thing. You see, an honest examination of our actions, our motives, our speech, our intentions reveal that none of us are perfect. 
We've all wronged the Lord and we've wronged others. But we need to get to that point or else we will never find the need to confess and say, I'm sorry. So we've done our self-examination, revealing the imperfections of our life. Then what? Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. I want you to notice the pronoun he in verse 9. Who is the he? He is not a pastor. He is not a priest. He is not another Christian. He is the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. I as a pastor do not have the power to absolve, which means to forgive your sins. Priests do not have the power to absolve or forgive your sins. Fellow believers do not have the power to absolve or forgive your sins. Only Jesus Christ, the Bible says very clearly, is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so with this self-examination and a realization that each one of us are not perfect, then it should follow our second action point, a daily need to practice the discipline of confession. Not to the priest, not to the pastor, but to the Lord. The daily need for spiritual discipline of confession. Again, in verse 10, it repeats the idea of verse 8, stressing on the need to come to the realization that all of us have sinned. Why is this important? Why is verse 8 and verse 10, speaking of the same thing, sandwiching in verse 9, the need to confess. Because unless you and I realize that we are not perfect and are wrong, we will never find the need to confess. You know, it's interesting. That's why couples don't talk to each other, right? If you're children or young people with us this morning, you know when your parents are fighting. Oftentimes, it's when they're not talking to each other. And why aren't they talking to each other? It's because no one wants to admit first that they are wrong. I know it's not a great revelation to you, but for those of you who put me on a pedestal, I just want to let you know that my wife and I, we fight. And there are times that I'm sure you have heard yelling come from the pastor's residence. Now, when you walk and you hear us yelling, I don't want you to think, oh my goodness, the pastor is fighting. I want you to think, wow, they're a normal couple. Because if a couple comes and tells me they never fight, I have no problems calling them a liar. Well, there are times we fight and we fight uh, because we disagree and we don't talk to each other for a long time. And I know for some of you, your long time is a week, a month. I, I hope not that long, but I've heard stories like that. Now, for us in our family, my relationship with my wife, a long time is just a day. You see, not talking for an extrovert like me is very difficult. Uh, and plus, I also need to be fed by my wife. So uh, the long time is just about a day. So usually when the day is about to end, and often before dinner, I will approach my wife, Cindy, and I will tell her, I think you owe me an apology. 
because this is what you have done wrong to me. She looks very sweet, but she's a very strong and feisty character. She will say, no, I think you owe me an apology because this is what you did to hurt me. And then the argument begins again, and we, let's just call it a debate. We debate a little. We will often come to an impasse, and we say, okay, we have both wronged each other, but who will say sorry first? And oftentimes, it can't be resolved. And so we revert back to being a bit childish, and this is what we do, seriously. We will say, okay, we will count to three, and then we will say sorry together. <laughs> That's what we will do. One, two, three. We'll say sorry at the same time. But I'll say it about a half second late, so that in my mind, she said sorry first. <laughs> you see, unless you and I understand that we are at fault, go back to point number one, God is never at fault. It's us. It's us who have wronged him to acknowledge in confession what we've done. It requires, but not only words, it requires action on my part in order to avoid doing it again. Because if one is really confessing and saying sorry for what they did, it should be with the intention of not doing it again, right? Because why would someone want to forgive you if you will not change? Now, I'm picking on my wife this week. I will apologize to her after this service. But uh, you've heard me say it before. My wife has a problem with keeping time. And she's often late. And I will be in the car waiting for her, and my blood will begin to boil. And she will... Come, and she will open the door, and she will say, Honey, I'm sorry I'm late. Now, we've been married uh, close to 17 years. I've heard that more than a thousand times. And there are times where even though she says sorry, I still, in my temper, get mad at her. I say, You're not really sorry for being late. Because if you really were sorry for being late, then you would have made an effort to be early. Isn't that correct? Amen? Yeah, you know. <laughs> but that's the truth. After a while, the sorry loses its emphasis, its meaning. Right? If, I, if I were to, for another example, steal a diamond bracelet from one of you, and you catch me, and you catch me wearing it. And you say, well, that belongs to me. You stole it from me. And I said, oh, my goodness, you have caught me. I'm, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? Would the person be okay with that? No, what does he want? He wants the bracelet back. If I were to simply say, well, you know, I'm sorry. Can I keep it? Of course not. Your returning of that jewelry is a sign of your true sorrow in confession. You see, in confession, there is both a verbal aspect of saying sorry, but there is an action that is required, and this is in its totality what the Lord is looking for. 
You know, I don't know about you, but this is how I prayed as a child. In fact, I pray uh, like this even until my young adult age. And, and right before I go to bed, I, I would pray, Dear Lord, please forgive me of all of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you pray like that? You say, wow, what a simple prayer. You know why I pray that every night? I pray that every night. Because just in case I were to die in my sleep, I had all of my sins forgiven. I felt secure that with that, with that one statement, all my sins were forgiven. You know, Lord, I don't have time to enumerate them. There's so many. So I just said, forgive me of all of my sins. And you're omniscient. You know them anyways. In that blanket statement, I feel I'm good to go. So every night I just pray, Lord, I've sinned a lot, but you took care of the problem. Thank you. Well, that carried into my adulthood. And it felt very okay to continue to sin. And that at every evening before I go to bed, ask God to forgive me, which the Bible says he will. But is that right? Is that what the practice of confession is? I don't think so. I think he's looking for us to examine our lives. And yes, he's omniscient and he knows what they are. And he wants us to enumerate for him, not to relive the sin, but to acknowledge that it is wrong, that we sincerely apologize, and we have a plan to remedy, to show our sincerity. So if we were to pray to the Lord, perhaps it would look something like this. Lord, I'm sorry for yelling at my wife for being late. I, I lost my temper. I acknowledge I'm hot-tempered in this area. Lord, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to enable me to control my temper. I, I resolve. I need you to help me. I'm going to resolve to wait one minute before I say anything in anger. A prayer like that shows that we're on the right track. Got to be specific. Or perhaps, Lord, I, I confessed I, I lusted on another and I watched pornography again. Lord, forgive me. And I know it's wrong. So I'm going to go out. Lord, would you help me find someone to keep me accountable? Would you allow me to have the resources to pay for a, a filtering system on my computer and my device to prevent me from going to those websites again? You see, the discipline of confession will keep all of us humble because it shows us we can't do it by ourselves. We're not number one. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to live a righteous life claiming the victory over sin we have through the blood of Jesus. And with a sincere confession, which the Lord knows our hearts, the blood of Jesus is applied to our sin and we are cleansed and we are made whole. It is not in the word of our confession. It is not in the sorry that we are cleansed. It is in the word coupled with a sincere desire to change, shown in action where confession finds its effectivity. So for those of you who are praying that blanket prayer, Lord, just forgive me of my sin. Do you really care that he forgives you? Or is that simply your crutch to make you feel good and justify your sins? Think about that.
You know, there are a lot of confessions uh, in the Bible, many of them found in the book of Psalms. When you have time when you get home, would you read Psalm 51 in in its entirety? But Psalm 51 is a great psalm. And before you get to verse 1, if you were to look at Psalm 51, in your Bibles, there's a notation. And in this notation, it says, a psalm of David. So we know it's written by David. To the chief musician, meaning it's to be put into song, to be memorialized. And then there's this notation. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Would you want to air out your dirty laundry? Because David just did. David says, I want this confession memorialized. I was convicted of spirit. If you don't know that story, David committed adultery with a married woman. And then he had her husband killed to justify their illicit romance. And he thought it was okay until God sent the prophet Nathan to him and rebuked him and said, you are wrong, David. David, he was shattered. Here's a man after God's own heart, but yet he was committing sin. Moved by the Spirit, he wrote this confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. He thinks God's going to kill him on the spot, which God very well could have. Have mercy on me, Lord. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I feel so dirty, which he should. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless, when you judge me. Here, David is saying, Lord, whatever you have planned for me, I humbly accept. If you want to punish me, go right ahead. I deserve it. You are blameless when you judge few verses down, he writes, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's his desire. And then his resolution, his action point, you know this verse well, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Oh, this is a confession. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew our steadfast spirit. Don't allow me to fall into this sin again. Is that what your prayers look like when you confess before the Lord? In this psalm, what I love about it, is no hint of justifying his sin. No excuses. Because point number two reminds us, sin is never consistent with a holy God. You know, he could have said, well, Lord, you created her so beautiful. And serves her right. It wasn't my fault. Who takes showers in the middle of the night? Right? Because we all do that with our sin. When we fall, well, Lord... You haven't given me a wife yet. 
Lord, you haven't given me a husband. Lord, I, I'm unhappy in my relationship. I know it's wrong, but it's on you. Or, or Lord, you gave me terrible parents. They live in the 60s. It's the 21st century. How come you didn't give me more progressive parents who are cool? Lord, why'd you put me in a school that's so conservative? Where everything's a no. It's, it's just natural for me to rebel. Well, hang on. Whatever you're thinking, the Bible says, if you're making excuses, you're not really sorry. Psalm 51, a true picture of what a confession looks like. It's all on me, Lord. It's me. A contrite confession, understanding the implication of what God wants for him in his life. Now, this application is not only to the Lord, but also to others. We went through this sermon series in the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Got to confess to others if you've wronged them. You see, confession is saying sorry, admitting that you have done something wrong. And then wanting to right that wrong in action and life change. That is the complete picture. Sorry is just a word that doesn't have much meaning unless it is accompanied by contrition and action and life change. Now you say, well, pastor, this is just way too hard. I can't do it. Why should I do it? Well, I love the Bible. It tells you why you should do it. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Two reasons. For why you should do those two actions in self-reflection and to confess. First reason, verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write you so that you may not sin. When you actually read the Bible, it tells you what you got to do and why. We confess in word and in action so that we will no longer sin. We will avoid more sin. We will sin less. Because it is highly hypocritical if you tell the Lord and others, well, I'm so sorry what I did to you and I, I won't do it again. And then you go right around and do it again. Which is what we do to the Lord all the time. With true confession, now you have a heightened sense of awareness of your sin. That's why it's a daily spiritual practice. Lord, I'm so sorry I lost my temper again. And if you are asking the Lord for forgiveness every day, your hot-temperedness, or mine to be specific, my hot-temperedness is at the tip of my mind. And I will remember it so that the next time I feel like I'm about to explode in anger, I pull back and I said, I told the Lord I would be more calm. Let's say you cheat on your spouse and you really hurt her and you've destroyed your family and you come humbly to confess to her and your family and she forgives you and you say, I'm going to change my life from this day forward. Remembering that of how you hurt and destroyed your family hopefully will help you avoid the temptation to do it again. You see, the first reason of why we need to confess is, the, is that it helps us avoid more sin. It helps us to avoid sinning. The reason we continue to do what we do in sin is because we are not thinking about it. 
But if it is in the center of our minds, that which we often fall into, if we are reminding ourselves, this does not please God, it will lessen you doing it. And then the scripture continues, lastly, verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see, the second reason we need to confess, number two, is it reminds us of God's grace, God's love, and God's sacrifice. Because we are reminded that we don't receive the penalty of our sins because of Jesus Christ, which evidences God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve. Because of His unconditional love, He saved us when He sacrificed Himself to die on again on our behalf. And in verse 2, there's a wonderful word. It's a theological word. It's a big word. It's called propitiation. And this word propitiation tells us that Jesus Christ's death satisfies God's rightful wrath towards our sin. Now, I know that's a big word. I like how Daniel Hyde puts it. He says, to understand propitiation, think about how a mother and father becomes angry when a child sins. How does that child persuade his parents to cease to be angry and become happy with him? Well, Daniel Hyde writes, in our home, when our children have done something wrong, our children have to sit in the corner in what we call time out. Then after they've thought through what they've done in time out, then they tell us what they did wrong. And finally, in admission of what they did was wrong, they will ask for forgiveness, which we in turn give big hugs and kisses. That's propitiation. God is rightfully angry because a holy God can have nothing to do with sin, and here we sin constantly. He is ready to zap us with a proverbial lightning bolt. The fact that all of us are sitting here, still alive, is really by the grace of God. Because if we really all receive what we deserve, none of you would have lived past the age of 13. I'm sorry. But he doesn't do that. Because his rightful anger is appeased. He's happy now. Because, not because we said sorry. Because he required death, Romans 6.23 said, to appease his anger. And so he himself sent his own son to die for us. So verse 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our own sins. He appeased his own anger with his own son. We did nothing, nothing to appease God. And that's why God can have fellowship with us today. When you confess and you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. These are the things I've done wrong. It heightens, I hope, in your mind a reminder that I deserve punishment and judgment but God is gracious and God is merciful and his love embraces us and he sacrificed himself on the cross for you and for me 
Forgiveness, listen carefully, is not a license for us to sin more. Understanding confession and forgiveness is a reminder that we are to sin no more. Don't abuse God's grace. You know, it's tough to preach a sermon like this because I actually have to do what I've just told you what to do. And it's never fun when you have to examine your own heart. Honestly, I had a pretty good thought of who I was. I'm a pastor. That puts me on some pedestal. But as I look at my own life, I realize there are so many attitudes and so many things I'm thinking and I'm doing and I'm saying that does not please the Lord. And, and it, it shakes you for a little bit. And then you realize, so what am I going to do about it? And then you begin to think. Ask God for forgiveness. And I was proud of myself this week. I did not get angry at Cindy for being late. I hope she will be convicted by the Spirit also. But you see, when you begin to look through your own life, really confess daily, it brings to mind everything you've always said, Lord, help me on this. It brings it to the forefront. And then you say, wow, what a terrible thought. You must have been so unhappy this week. No, I could not find myself more joyful. Why? Because the more you dwell about these things, the more you are reminded of God's grace. The more you are reminded of His love. The more you are reminded of His sacrifice. And daily, every day, when you think about His grace and love and sacrifice, it cannot but give you the joy. Yes, I am a sinner saved by grace. I am not perfect. But joy wells in my heart because Jesus has saved me, and that will be at the forefront of your mind when you practice the discipline of confession. You and I deserve nothing. We have been given everything. How cannot we find joy in such wonderful thoughts? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's good to actually practice it. Teaches us many things that we need to learn. May your word this morning prick the hearts of these men and women to challenge them to examine their lives, all of us, and to see areas where we have wronged you and others and begin the transformation of life change towards Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.